You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. For our scripture reading this morning, we turn to James chapter 4, the verses 4 through 10. Some difficult words that James had for the 12 tribes, the people of God scattered among the nations. As he says at the beginning of his letter, he writes these words to the church. They're difficult words to hear, but when we hear them and take them to heart, we are blessed and lifted up, as he says. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Our text this morning is from the first chapter of Isaiah, verses 1 through 31. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers. Children given to corruption, they have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, and listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feast my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. 
When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels. Companions of thieves, they all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel, declares, Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your iniquities. I will restore your judges as in the days of old, your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, if you've ever spent any time in a high school or a university biology class, then you've probably spent some time doing what's called a dissection. A dissection. A dissection is the process. Some people find it fascinating and some people find it absolutely disgusting. But it's the process of of opening up an organism, might be a plant, might be an animal, dead animal, of course, to study the inner workings of its body. See what's going on inside. How things are all working together. What's the health of this or what was the health of this organism. It's what you're seeking to find as you do a dissection. A dissection of an animal in biology class, a frog or a worm, something like that, might make you squeamish, and it might not. What if you had to do the dissection, though, of of a heavily diseased body? If you were to open up a healthy lung, take a look at that. That'd be one thing and be interesting. Maybe you'd still find that quite gross. But if you were to look at the lung of a long-time smoker, then you would probably find something that looks quite disgusting to you. What Isaiah is doing in our text this morning is performing a dissection on the people of Judah. It's not the dissection that you do in a biology class. This is like a spiritual 
dissection. He's, he's opening them up, and then he's turning it around and showing them, look, this is what you look like on the inside. Pay attention to this. How would you like that? Someone open you up and, and show you everything that's going wrong inside your body. See this? See that? Might look fine on the outside, but this is what's happening when it goes inside. Well, that's what Isaiah is doing. He's opening up the political and the religious and the social situation of the people of Judah. And he's exposing the fact that they have a dreadful disease, sin. And it's taken over their whole body and it's ravaging their lives. Yes, the dissection that Isaiah performs in this first chapter of his prophecies is not that of a nation that's given to serving the Lord as they ought to be because this is the people of Judah. This is the home of Jerusalem, of Zion, of the temple. These are the people of God. They ought to be serving the Lord. But what Isaiah exposes is that, in fact, they are not serving the Lord, but they are living in sin. And so Isaiah, and this is our theme for this morning, Isaiah dissects Judah's spiritual condition. He dissects Judah's spiritual condition. And so we'll first consider that dissection. See, what what does Isaiah say? If you've been listening during the text, you probably get a sense of what he said already. But we see within this dissection, secondly, the call that he doesn't just expose it to him and say, see, isn't that disgusting? And then leave them alone. But he shows them it and he says, now, it's right before your eyes. Now you need to hear the call of God, the call to repentance. And finally, he reveals to them the God who saves. He doesn't leave them in despair, looking at their sin, but he points them, points them dramatically and boldly to the God who saves. So first of all, we'll look at the dissection. We'll we'll go through what Isaiah says. And so prepare your stomachs. And your hearts, because what Isaiah sees among the people of Judah is gross. Isaiah prophesied over 40 years to the people of Judah. As the first verse in our text indicates during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, some of these kings were, were quite good. Kings, chronicles, as they mention the reigns of, of Isaiah, for example. It says Isaiah was a good king. Yes, he erred. In, in going into the temple, but otherwise he was a good king doing what the Lord had commanded, but others were not. Like Ahaz was a wicked king. And some of these kings were very prosperous, and toward the end they were not. There were greater kingdoms that were coming and attacking the people of Judah. And it seems that Sorry, by the end, so there's there's this progression. The reign of Isaiah was was very prosperous, and Isaiah was generally a good king. The reign of Ahaz, Ahaz was a wicked king, and Israel was on a decline. Hezekiah was better, but sorry, Judah continued on a decline at that point. And it seems that Isaiah has arranged the material of his prophecy with this this end in mind, this decline and this wickedness that that creeped into the life of the people and of the rulers of Judah. What this means is that this first chapter in Isaiah is most likely not the first prophecy that came to Isaiah. 
If you've got your text open, if you flip forward a little bit, you can come to the famous chapter of Isaiah chapter 6. And there we read, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. And Isaiah receives his call. He receives his call to preach to the people. Chapter 6, verse 9. Go and tell this people, be ever hearing and ever understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. So it seems that it's at that time that Isaiah receives his commission and his call to prophesy. Perhaps some prophecies had come before that. But the prophecies that are in the book of Isaiah are not necessarily the prophecies that came before the call, if any did at all. But rather, this first prophecy in chapter 1 is like a title. It's like a heading, an introduction. This is what the book of Isaiah is going to be about. People of God, hear this. This is the end that is coming, and so you need to listen up. It's like a table of contents. This is the kind of stuff that's happening among the people of Judah. Ultimately, however, the time period of this prophecy is not so important. What is more important is what's happening in Judah. What's happening there? What's the culture like? What's going on in the lives of these people that Isaiah is prophesying prophesying to? Well, perhaps the best way to describe what's happening among the people of Judah is this well-known theological phrase, total depravity. Heard of the expression, total depravity? That's the phrase that kept ringing in my own ears as I as I looked at this passage and reflected on it this past week, total depravity. This nation is comprehensively corrupt. And that's what Isaiah is showing to the people of Judah as he writes these words. That's what the word of God is revealing by the power of the Spirit. Now, total depravity, of course, does not mean that the people are as corrupt as they possibly could be. That's not what total depravity means. When we speak about total depravity, that we're conceived and born in sin, that we're totally depraved, it doesn't mean that everyone is as bad as they could possibly be. We can be thankful to the Lord that that's not true. This is what total depravity means. Not that everyone's as bad as they could possibly be, but I've heard it explained this way very shortly. If sin was blue, if sin was the color blue, then we'd be blue all over. That's what total depravity means. It means that we're blue all over with sin. That means that every part of us is affected by sin totally from, as Isaiah even says here, from our head to our foot, our mind, our heart, our will, all affected by sin, all tainted blue. That's what the Canons of Dort describes our confession, Canada Dort, chapter 3, 4, article 3, says this. Let's listen to these words. Therefore, all men are conceived and born as children of wrath, incapable of any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in sins, and slaves to sin. And without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they neither will nor can return to God. They're totally depraved. They can't return to God on their own. They can't reform their depraved nature or prepare themselves for its reformation. And that's what Isaiah describes here to the people of Judah, doesn't he? Doesn't he describe a a people and a nation and a culture, rulers and, and citizens that are blue all over 
with sin. Totally depraved. Look at our text. Look at the verses 2 through 6 and see how he describes their comprehensive sinfulness. That, that's what the verses 2 through 6 show, the comprehensive sinfulness. He says they are, this is no compliment, they're dumber than oxes and donkeys. An ox knows his master, a donkey's his owner, owner's manger, but Israel does not know. They're dumber than oxes and donkeys. He says in verse 4 that they're loaded with guilt. They're a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. He says in verse 6, from the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. And he continues on after that to continue this comprehensively corrupt situation. Look at verses 7 through 9 as it describes the, the impact, the political impact of their rebellion. And he says, your, your land is burned. Your precious land. It's burned up. It's under siege. He says, unless God had been gracious to you, you'd have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, completely and utterly destroyed. Not only their political institutions and their land has been ravaged, but perhaps more pointedly, their worship has become comprehensively corrupt. They perform the right actions, as you can see in verses 10 through 20, but it has no effect. They're offering the burnt offerings. They're, they're coming to God with their prayers, but God doesn't want their sacrifices. God says, I'm not going to listen to your prayers. Why not? Because of the corruption that lives in their heart. Because the source is corrupt. Because they're not offering these sacrifices in, in thankful worship to God. And they're not praying to God in humble dependence. They're just doing the things that God expects them to do. And perhaps they're even trying to bolster their own pride or win God on their side, trying to manipulate him by their religious performance. God has no time for that. The mighty one of Israel has no time for these offerings. He disdains, he says, the, the sound of their feet in his temple. And all those religious activities, instead of winning his favor, they only serve to increase his disgust. It's the nature of sin that it pollutes. And so it's not just that these people would be polluted as they go to the temple, but going out from the temple as well, these people are polluted. And so you can see in the rest of the verses of our text that, that this, this false worship impacts every area of their lives. It interacts the way they... It, it affects the way they deal with their neighbors. They don't love their neighbor. They don't care for their neighbor. But what do they become? Verse 21. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. Now she's full of murderers. The rulers are rebels and thieves. Isaiah seems to be recounting the Ten Commandments here as he points out the sins of the people. They, they don't look after the widow and the orphan, those people in society who are most vulnerable, most in need of care. Instead, they take advantage of them. And so we know what to call this, don't we? It's total depravity. They're completely given over to sin. They're comprehen comprehensively corrupted. The word of God is clear. 
And so, brothers and sisters, what does the word of God have to say to us this morning, sitting here? We're not sitting in Judah at that time. The things that have been happening in the world, the rise of Assyria, the kings, Isaiah and Ahaz and Jotham, Hezekiah, those aren't our kings. So what does the word of God have to say to us sitting here today? Well, as we consider that, we need to be careful. Two cautions. First of all, we we can't just make ourselves the equivalent of Judah here. The people of God in in the nation of Judah, or if you want to put the two tribes together of, of Israel and Judah, is not the same as any nation today. It's not the same as, as Canada or America or North America or Europe or any nation today. We can't draw a parallel on the political front. We can't see a nation that's ravaged by war and say, see, it's a direct result. It comes right here from Isaiah. We can't do that. And second, we don't need to try to find all the sins that are happening here in Isaiah in our lives and in our place. We can find them if we look. But, but we don't need to believe that, that things today in, in, say, our congregation are as bad as they were here in Judah. We pray that they aren't. From what we can see, the situation is not the same. Of course, if these sins are present among us, we will be held to account for them. If sin is glibly tolerated, then we'll have to answer for that on the last day. But but we live in the time of the new covenant. We live in the time of the Spirit. We know that we are richer than the people were in those days. We have the Spirit guiding us. We have the revelation of God given in Jesus Christ. We're not awaiting that. We've already seen it. And so we're so much more blessed than these people here. We're in a better place. We're in the time of the new covenant, not the old covenant. But yet... But yet, the question does still come to us. Given those cautions, the question still comes to us, what does our spiritual anatomy look like? What does it look like? If if we would be cut open spiritually and, and we'd be able to see the inner workings of what's going on in our heart and our mind and our will. That's what Isaiah is doing. He's holding before the people what they truly look like. We may not look the same as these people here living in Judah in that time, but we can still come to the same conclusion, can't we? That we're totally depraved. That we, in ourselves, apart from the grace of God, are comprehensively corrupt. And we still, even with the grace of God, are sinful. We still struggle against sin. They're still present in our lives. And so we need to examine our lives. We need to take account of our sin. Do we still know and repent of our sins? Do we still know how to repent of our sins? Canons of Dort, in the next chapter, says this, yet the converted are not always so led and moved by God that they cannot, in particular actions, turn aside through their own fault from the guidance of grace and be seduced by and yield to the lusts of the flesh. The converted. The converted. Christians. 
still struggle with sin. That's what the Canons of Dort confesses. That's what we confess there. And that's the reality that it brings before us. And that's the reality that James brought before the people of God as well as he wrote to the New Covenant Church. Who was he writing to when he said, wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double minded, grieve, mourn and wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's writing to the church. So what does your spiritual anatomy look like? If someone would come and perform a spiritual dissection on you, what would they find? Because the sin is all around us. And the sin is within us. We live in an age, for example, give just a few examples. We live in an age of rampant pornography. It's all around us. It's pervasive. It's on every electronic device that you can imagine. Well, in this age of rampant pornography, if, if we were to cut you open and reveal what's going on, would that lust be there? Would that desire for more or perhaps even that, that slavery to it? Would that be there? Or what about in this age, we don't live in Judah in those days, we live in Langley, British Columbia, one of the most prosperous places in the world today. And yes, a place of rampant materialism. In this age of rampant materialism, would we find greed and desire for more, for riches? We find that inside of you. Does it live there? Does it lurk there under the surface? Do we take all those blessings that God gives us with a mouth and a heart overflowing with thankfulness? Or does our, is our mouth and our heart never quite satisfied so that we always want more? Maybe your sins are obvious and everyone can see them and they make you feel ashamed. Maybe you're really good at hiding your sins and on the outside you look really great and no one can see them. And so it fills you with pride. Pride can lurk inside. One person's sins are on the outside, one person's sins are on the inside, and another buries his secrets deep, 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 deep down, where he hopes that no one will find them. But the word of God pierces. It pierces down. Separates the bone from the marrow. It goes right down to the roots. You can't hide your sins below it. The word of God exposes What's going on in our hearts and lives? What does it expose? What the word of God does is tell that different story as Isaiah lays bare the sins of the people. Why? Why does Isaiah do this? Does he do this to to make the people feel bad? Yes, absolutely. He wants to disgust them. With their sins. He wants them to feel disgusted at their sins. But that's not all. The word of God also lays bare these sins. So that we can acknowledge them in all their disgustingness. And ugliness and corruption and pollution. And so that we can hear the call of God to repent. And so we come to our second point. This is what a large part of the prophetic ministry of Isaiah was about. It was calling the people to repent. To repent. It's what Isaiah was doing to the people of Judah. It's what Amos was doing to the northern kingdom. It's what Jeremiah and Ezekiel would come and do after. Was to lay bare the sins of God's people and to call them to repent and to find forgiveness with the gracious 
and almighty God of salvation. I remember in high school that we had someone from the Lung Association who went around probably to many different high schools and and they would speak to us about smoking. And they would show to us a normal, healthy lung and, and what it looked like and we all thought that was quite interesting. And then she would reach into her bag and, and pull out this other thing, which didn't look at all like the healthy lung that we'd just been looking at. This was the lung of someone who had been smoking for decades, a heavy smoker. It was not a real lung. It was a model of a, a lung, but they got the point across. And, and what do you think the, the her message was to us, that, that person from the Lung Association, as she showed us that lung, did she want us to say, man, those people who smoke for decades, they're terrible. No, not at all. She wanted to say to us, don't smoke. And if you are smoking, stop. And that's the point of what Isaiah is saying here. Not so we can look at those people in Judah and say, man, they're terrible. But so that we can acknowledge our sins and we can hear the call of God to stop. Isaiah says, I've shown you your sin. Now what? He says in verse 13, stop. Stop bringing meaningless sacrifices. Verse 15, stop bringing meaningless prayers. Verse 17, stop doing wrong. Stop flirting with adultery on the internet. Stop lusting after riches in your heart. And then do what is right. Stop doing wrong and do what is right. That comes right after the stop. Learn to do what is right. Seek justice. Don't take advantage of of widows and orphans, but look after them. That's what repentance looks like. Not that just you, you stop doing certain things, but that you start doing what is right, what God calls you to by his word. This is what righteousness is. It's not only doing, not doing what's wrong, but wholeheartedly doing what is right. But how? But how? These people of Judah, they're corrupt top to bottom. They don't even know God. They don't listen to his word. And here the word of God comes to them and says, repent. But they're not listening to the word of God. So how will they be saved? Remember, we're dealing with a totally depraved people, comprehensively corrupt. And so how does a person who's totally corrupt find salvation? Well, they won't find it within themselves. They must look to God. This is the point. That in this spiritual dissection, Isaiah exposes the sin of God's people. But his purpose in it is to call them to look not in themselves and and wallow in their misery, but to look outside of themselves to the God who saves. He doesn't say, listen, you guys are in pretty rough shape. You might want to kind of shape up a little bit. Try to do a little better next time. No, he says, you're lost. So you need a God who can comprehensively save you. You're comprehensively corrupt. You need a salvation that comes outside of yourselves. And so we consider the God who saves. Of course, many of us know this, don't we? We know that God saves us from sin. We know that God is our Savior. But yet it does happen, doesn't it, that in the face of sin, we're not always so confident. We don't quickly run from sin and and come to God. 
Say, I, I've sinned again. Please forgive me. But we either stay there and, and try to forget about the fact that we're children of God. Or forget about the fact that God calls us to repentance. Or we feel, well, I can't come to God now. I'm covered in sin. He's not going to hear me. I'm totally ashamed. So we just stay there and wallow in it. We forget. We forget, don't we, that that God is the God who comprehensively saves. That the provision that God has made for salvation and for the, the forgiveness of sins is entirely his work. But that's what Isaiah seeks to show the people of God. They, they knew God, but they had forgotten. And so God calls them back to himself. God calls them back to the very one that they have spurned. Remember, Isaiah said, or the Lord said in verse 2, I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. So the one who has been spurned and rebelled against is calling them back. Do you see? The one who has been rejected is the very one who is their only hope. Their total depravity has expressed itself in rejecting him so that as we can we can see even their worship and their sacrifices and their attempts at maintaining some kind of relationship with him but on their own terms only makes the situation worse. So what does God say in response to these comprehensively sinful and corrupt people? He says, look at me. God says, look at me. Don't look at your sins. Don't look anywhere else. Don't don't start a new program. Don't go to the self-help. Don't bow at some oak or Asherah pole. Look at me. Look what I'm going to do. Okay, you just stay there and look at me. You're wicked. That's clear. There's no remedy for you within yourself. But to me, uh, look to me, however, and you will see that I am a forgiving and a restoring God. I am the God who saves. God says this salvation is going to be 100% me. That's what the name Isaiah means, by the way. That's the very message. His name is the message of this whole book. Yahweh saves. God saves. That's the point. Look at verse 18. God has just, through the prophet Isaiah, laid bare the sins of God's people. And then he says in verse 18, come, let's reason together. Except this reasoning is very one-sided. It's more like, come, look what I'm going to do. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. This is what I am going to do for you. It will be 100% me. It will be 100% by grace because you are 100% depraved and corrupt. And then he sounds the same note in verse 24. The the mighty one of Israel declares, ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. And we think, oh, here it comes. This is going to be bad. But then he says, I will turn my hand against you and I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. What's left after the impurities are removed? Pure gold. I will restore your judges as in days of old, your counselors as at the beginning, so that after your word you'll be called a city of righteousness, the faithful city. What has Judah done up to this point? Nothing. God will accomplish this. The mighty God, the God who saves. So how does God deal with a totally depraved and comprehensively corrupt people? He reveals himself 
as their savior. He says, look to me. He's the one who forgives sins. He forgives them. He washes them away. He's the one who restores cities that at one time are called a harlot. He restores them so that they be called a city of righteousness, the faithful city. And this, brothers and sisters, is what God has done in Jesus Christ. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross is what this chapter in Isaiah points forward to as God says, leave it alone and leave it to me. I will accomplish this. He accomplished it in Jesus Christ. In pointing Judah to the God who saves, he's pointing them toward the ultimate revelation of God in Jesus of Nazareth. Through the life and the death of Jesus of Nazareth, of the eternal Son of God made man, God accomplished this salvation 100% by himself, out of his grace, in his love, for a people who couldn't save themselves. He accomplished forgiveness, restoration, righteousness. He did it all through Christ. So how would God deal with sinners? God would make atonement for them himself. Yes, the sin of God's people would literally drive Jesus to the cross. It's, it's striking if you, if you think about it. it. It was not only our sin as we sing in many hymns, our, our sin that, that drove and held Jesus to the cross. But it was literally the sin of the people that forced Jesus to the cross. And what did he do there? He died to make atonement for their and our sins. And so the message of the prophet is clear. In realization of your sinfulness, look to the God who saves. See the God who forgives. See the God who washes away sin, who grants the the status of righteous and faithful to people who were once thieves and murderers and adulterers. Dear congregation and friends, you must Look to God, the God who reveals himself in his word, the God who sent Jesus Christ. There is no other salvation. You must look to God. You must look to him. Because apart from him, there is only ruin. As Isaiah finishes in our text this morning. As he says in verse 30 on, you will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man, so strong, but yet inwardly so corrupt, will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. That's the end of those who do not humble themselves before the Lord and look to him for their salvation. But Zion will be redeemed. So humble yourselves before the Lord. Acknowledge your sin. Be real about that spiritual dissection. Don't turn your face from it. Look at it. Humble yourself before the Lord. Seek his forgiveness. And the God who saves will lift you up. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.